Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 49, The Big Push. When the British Empire declared war on Germany on the 4th of August 1914, she acted free of continental obligations. With no commitments tying her to France and Russia, she had pursued war on her terms and her terms only. It was important that her government was left free to decide her fate. In reality, though, there was no question Britain would need to get involved. In a great power war, great powers have to fight. And if Britain sought to retain her position at the top of the pyramid, she could not sit by while her competitors hammered out the future of Europe. The German invasion of Belgium, then, had provided the perfect excuse for British intervention. Not only did it serve as a palatable, easy-to-consume justification for the average citizen, it reflected a greater anxiety concerning imperial security. As we saw back in our episodes on the July Crisis, Great Britain did not go to war to defend brave little Belgium. That was a facade aimed at convincing the public that pursuing war was a noble, just, and worthy cause. This appeased cultural sensitivities, which made the coming challenges easier to digest. Of more pressing concern was the prospect of the European lowlands falling under German control. This area, roughly divided between Belgium and the Netherlands, was crucial to imperial welfare. If the Germans seized it, it would be a crippling blow to Britain's infrastructure. The vital cross-channel trade routes would be cut off, giving Germany a foothold on the English Channel. It was an anxiety which was not only realistic, but was also rooted in history. Germany had not been the first power to threaten these areas. Over time, the Spanish and French had taken cracks at it as well. In both instances, Britain had fought as part of a coalition, which defeated the enterprising powers in turn. Coalition warfare was how the empire conducted business. When a nation threatened the balance of power, Britain always found someone willing to talk. In the 1500s, it was French concerns over the Spanish. Then, in the 19th century, it was the decade-long Napoleonic Wars, soon followed by threats of Russian expansion into the Crimea. Each time, Britain had entered conflict via coalition with two goals in mind, to maintain the balance of power and to secure imperial interests. While the particulars changed over time depending on who was in charge, the fundamentals remained the same. No nation should be allowed to grow so strong as to pose a risk to European harmony. As one Victorian statesman wrote in 1848, Britain has no eternal allies or perpetual enemies. Only her interests are eternal and perpetual. For better or for worse, Britain marched to war in 1914 with these same principles in mind. The BEF had maintained its sovereignty and fought independently of French command. Prior to their dispatch, Lord Kitchener had made clear to Sir John that he was to aid their French and Russian allies as best he could, but never sacrifice his independence or initiative. These instructions neatly captured the dilemma of British strategy. The French army was a proud ancient institution, consisting of over one million men in modern artillery. By comparison, the BEF was just 100,000 strong, supported by a sprinkling of light field guns. How this small force would gel with their senior ally was unknown, and it would take three and a half years of bitter fighting before answers would emerge. For much of the first two years of war, there was a degree of uncertainty between Anglo-French leaders. The French army had handled most of the fighting and inevitably absorbed the heaviest casualties. The British did what they could to assist, but due to limits on manpower and war material, their chances of making a meaningful contribution was restricted. 
battles at Neuve Chapelle and Luz were minuscule compared to French army operations at the same time. With the Western Front deadlocked, British leaders were concerned about the war's cost, both in human and economic totals. Thus, alternative ways of fighting the Austro-German alliance were floated. Churchill's Dardanelles campaign was one such ambitious plan which promised great returns, removing Ottoman Turkey and opening important supply routes into Russia. It was controversial from the start, but when it collapsed along the crimson shores of Gallipoli, a new wave of pessimism towards the Anglo-French coalition followed in its wake. This undercurrent of skepticism was inevitable. After all, England and France had been enemies for much longer than they had been friends. Thrust together by a mutual threat, the two nations found themselves fighting for separate things. Both wished to see Germany defeated, but how this was going to be achieved differed depending on which side of the channel you stood on. For France, it was national survival. For the second time in 40 years, she had been invaded by her German nemesis, whose army was first class and formidable. Their occupation had cost France over half her coal production and almost all her steel and iron output, not to mention nearly one million dead or wounded already. Thus, French leaders were eager to eject the Germans as soon as possible. Joseph Joffre's attack-first mentality fit this mold. The only way to get the Germans out was to remove them by force. Any sort of diplomatic settlement meant straight-up defeat. For the British, however, the war was still being fought at arm's length. The home islands had not been invaded, and that stretch of English Channel served as a protective cocoon isolating her from the horrors being unleashed. Although sympathetic to French anxieties, British leaders were tackling their own set of troubles. It was clear that if Britain was to remain a great power, not only would she have to fight alongside her allies, but also ensure she was not left financially and morally bankrupt. In other words, she had to match the frontline contributions of France and Russia, and the longer she delayed, increased the chance of German victory. In short, Britain's ultimate goal was to obtain a seat at the peace table where she could guarantee the security of her imperial interests. This meant she could no longer play second fiddle. If she did, she might find herself shut out of post-war negotiations altogether. This prospect horrified the imperialists for good reason. Why should Britain's allies reward her when it was their blood that had been spilled? It was clear that Britain would need some war clout if she was to be taken seriously. But how would Britain go about gaining this clout? Her sea power and economic muscle could only take her so far. She thus had to do something she had never done before in her history. Build a continental army. Lord Herbert Kitchener was one of the few men who understood what was at stake. Kitchener was focused on the endgame, and saw the war as a three-year struggle at the least. As Secretary of State for War, it was his word which decided wartime strategy. In keeping with tradition, Kitchener saw the war playing out in two phases. While France and Germany battered each other, Britain would be raising a national army of volunteers. Then, in 1917, this new army would take the field and spearhead the Allies to victory. It was a shrewd strategy to be sure, but it fit the long-held tradition of the free hand. Britain had gone to war for her own interests, and would fight to defend those interests however she saw fit. Kitchener's strategy has been hailed as prophetic, and in many ways it was, given how events played out. But what he failed to appreciate, at least at first anyway, was that the war had already altered years of imperialist thinking. By the end of 1915, the pressures of coalition warfare had outranked British interests. France had suffered horrendous losses, Russia had been thumped, and Serbia conquered. 
Kitchener's plan to hold back reserves until they were ready was no longer practical. In August 1915, he confessed as much in his famous quote, We had to make war as we must, and not as we should like to. To a degree, Kitchener's quote served as a warning to all the major combatants. The difference being that the Western Allies recognized the importance of cooperation much sooner than the Central Powers. As we've seen, the Germans and Austrians rarely cooperated on anything. The Polish campaign in 1915 was a shining example of what they could accomplish, but Falkenhayn's distrust of the Easterners guaranteed it as a one-off. As soon as it ended, Falkenhayn immediately set to work planning for Verdun, while Conrad shifted his focus to Montenegro and then to Italy, with neither chief informing the other of their intention. The contrast between this and the Western alliance was night and day. As the Central Powers planned their disjointed efforts, military leaders of the Allied armies were assembling at Chantilly to discuss coordinated strategy. Chaired by Joseph Joff, the Chantilly meeting on the 6th of December was a tipping point in Allied relations. They agreed that the strategic flailing of 1915 was no longer sufficient. The new year would see the Allies undertake coordinated, sustained offensives on all fronts. Anglo-French in the west, Russian in the east, and Italian in the south. Each of the representatives agreed on the principle and adjourned to prepare themselves. But as we've seen throughout the last 10 episodes or so, the Chantilly Agreement was thrown out the window by the attack at Verdun. The Germans beat the Allies to the punch, pinning France to the ground while her allies scrambled to assist. Bravely, it had been the Russians who responded first, resulting in the slaughter at Lake Narach. The Italians, already occupied in the murderous Zanzo front, were soon faced with a mini-Verdun themselves, when the Austrians launched a major attack into Tyrol. By May 1916, the prospect of a coordinated attack seemed remote. Each ally was nursing their own troubles, as Verdun continued to drain France's resources. During this period, from the beginning of Verdun to the summer of 1916, we've been doing some jumping around to cover important events as they unfolded. After introducing Verdun, we took a break and saw what was happening in the other nations around the same period. We took a look at the domestic challenges facing Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and how the experiences of the first year and a half shaped the future of those troubled empires. Then we shifted to the naval side of things and spent about 300 hours discussing the Battle of Jutland, that great naval contest which decided who held sway over the North Sea. Following that, we switched back to the continent and looked at social change in Britain and the creation of Lloyd George's Ministry of Munitions, before jumping back east to cover the momentous Brusilov Offensive of June the 4th, an event which altered not just Verdun, but crippled the war-making abilities of the Austro-Hungarians. With the exception of Brusilov's campaign, none of these events served to lessen the strains of Verdun. Both armies continued to pour men into the grinder as the fighting peaked that summer. As events unfolded around them, there was one agreement from Chantilly which still held firm. The Anglo-French component of the General Allied Offensive. As one of his last moves as BEF commander, Sir John French had endorsed Joffre's strategy. Although, in reality, Sir John's words were little more than diplomatic assurances. He attended his resignation the previous day, and was only present until his replacement was confirmed. December 1915 brought sweeping changes to British command. Sir John was replaced by Douglas Haig on the 19th of December, followed by personnel changes in the War Office, which we'll cover later in the episode. The BEF was expanding as well, ballooning to 2.5 million volunteers divided into four armies and 60 reserve divisions. 
this new army was the fruit of Lord Kitchener's labors, and in 1916, it would play the leading role. This future endeavor turned out to be the Somme Campaign of 1916, arguably the most hotly debated and controversial operation in British military history, if not in all military history. No other campaign has been dissected, analyzed, and picked apart with greater scrutiny. The horrendous casualty lists and lack of obvious success made it the perfect case study for debate. Its notorious first day, on the 1st of July 1916, is etched into the collective memory. The British lost 57,540 men on that day, nearly 20,000 of them being fatalities. These men were not professional soldiers. They were volunteers who signed up to defend the empire against the enemy. They were cobblers, librarians, and students, postal workers, and shop clerks. Together, they made up what can only be defined as a true imperial army, with Canadians, South Africans, Australians, and New Zealanders fighting side by side. Because of this, the Somme was an international battle, an experience which continues to hang like a shadow a full century later. In many ways, the Somme marked the end of the British presumption that the war could be held at arm's length. As we discussed previously, the British generals who planned the battle are still seen as impartial caricatures, with Douglas Haig being the most absent-minded of them all. In all my years of reading and writing about the Great War, this has always struck me as an anomaly for a nation to collectively condemn its leaders and their campaigns despite being the victor. If British generals were truly incompetent, an arranged peace would have been the best the Allies could have hoped for. Instead, they got a draconian peace dictated on their terms. Certainly, something doesn't add up. When I first began this podcast, one of my main goals was to debunk some of the myths about the Great War. One of the reasons I started in 1890 was to show how the Sarajevo assassination was just one small event in a rapidly changing world. Hindsight has blurred our perceptions, and we tend to lose a grip on the facts when faced with the numbers. Streamlining history by simplifying it into a single sentence, or number in the case of the Psalm, is one way to make sense of complicated events. And certainly, the Butcher's Bill of July the 1st demands an explanation. But casualty figures alone cannot tell the full story. 57,000 dead and wounded is a horrific number, and for many, it's proof enough of Hag's stupidity. But what if I told you that despite this, July the 1st was a day of mixed success, with British and French units in the south accomplishing their objectives, and that by November, the Germans, in some places, were forced to retreat 50 kilometers to the west. Certainly, this makes assessing the Somme a bit more complicated now, doesn't it? While it was not the resounding victory the Allies had hoped for, it nevertheless dealt the German army an irreparable blow, forcing it to reevaluate its strategy for 1917. If we are to understand the Great War correctly, we cannot take lightly what the war achieved. The Somme campaign is thus an excellent opportunity to explore the war's complexities and contradictions. Before laying out how I plan to go about this, we need to set a few reminders for ourselves. The first is that from its embryonic stage, the Somme was an Anglo-French endeavor. Despite popular myth, it was never, at any point, an independent British venture. Although this dynamic would change, French and British troops fought side by side for its entire duration. Limiting ourselves to a British perspective would be a fool's errand. Secondly, the campaign lasted five months, from the 1st of July to the 18th of November. This means that there is a sizable haul of information which is rarely discussed. The first day was one of varying fortune, and will certainly be giving it its fair shake. 
but the fighting did not end after July the 1st. After all, this was the Somme Campaign. That term alone indicates that it was destined to be a long, bitterly fought endeavor. In many ways, calling it the Battle of the Somme, as in singular, is ignoring how large and complex it was. It was not meant to be won in one day. Its objectives were far-reaching and required immense preparation. The events of July the 1st, then, did not mean the Somme was a failure. Far from it. Ghastly in its cost, yes, but it was just the beginning of an undertaking which would stretch the limits of the combatants to the extreme. The third and final point relates to a theory which I personally subscribe to, which is that military performance during the Great War can be seen as a learning curve. This is especially true when applied to the British. European armies struggled to break the deadlock, and grappled with how to implement new technologies. The war structure seemed to contort with each new attempt, adding a fresh layer of horror and sophistication. But while France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia had experience handling large field armies, Britain had no such advantage. She had never raised an army of this size before, which meant every member, from the commander-in-chief down to the enlisted private, were learning as they went. To make matters worse, they were doing so on the fly without the benefit of peacetime training. To say that the BEF was an army of amateurs is not a condemnation. It's historical fact. In 1916, Douglas Haig commanded an army which dwarfed those of Wellington and later Montgomery. It was also the most technologically advanced, which utilized new tools and techniques at a torrential pace. This was a crushing responsibility and mistakes were inevitable. Furthermore, Haig was to lead this army in a coalition which demanded more participation as time wore on. Haig was thus restricted in what he could do, often sacrificing his own plans to appease his coalition partners. Anglo-French relations are crucial in understanding the Somme, and cannot be overlooked. So how do we plan on going about this? To contextualize the Somme, we need to back up to December 1915 and make our way forward. Essentially, the planning phase of the Somme can be divided into three distinct periods. Before Verdun, after Verdun, and during Verdun. And this is not me being a smartass. The two battles are ghostly twins, and we cannot understand the Somme without examining its mercurial relationship with Verdun. This episode will be the first of two discussions covering the planning phase of the Somme. Today, we'll be putting the battle into context from its earliest conception up to the start of Verdun, and how it fit into overall Anglo-French strategy. In part two, we'll examine the shifting relationship between the two battles, and how the events along the Meuse dictated the operation launched on the 1st of July. There is a lot of information to cover here. Originally, I did not plan on making two episodes, but complex events require complex discussions. After all, we wouldn't be here unless we all had an interest in this stuff, so let's get this ball rolling. When Douglas Haig took command of the British Expeditionary Force on the 19th of December 1915, Kitchener's instructions to him mirrored those given to his predecessor, John French. Haig was to cooperate and do what he could to assist their allies. His command was an independent one. In no case was he to come under the command of an Allied general further than cooperation necessitated. From the start, Haig's promotion marked a thawing of Anglo-French relations. His views on strategy aligned with Joffre's. Germany's defeat could only come on the Western Front, and the BEF 
would have to strike hard if this goal was to be met. Haig was not present at Chantilly, but he endorsed Joff's strategy without hesitation. While the two men agreed on principle, there was a murkier side which still needed fleshing out. By the end of 1915, the Anglo-French armies were exhausted. Costly setbacks in France and at the Dardanelles had sapped much of their manpower. Men, munitions, and willpower needed to rejuvenate before further attempts could be made. War industries, as well, needed time to catch up to production quotas and ensure quality control. Although Haig and Joff saw the necessity of coordinated attacks, they knew they had to proceed with caution, and to study their respective situations first. As the emphatic commander-in-chief of the French army, Joseph Joff had a personality few could match. Like so many others who experienced humiliating defeat in 1871, this second German invasion was personal. Forty years ago, they were students, and now they were in the driver's seat. Joff was eager to avoid the mistakes of his predecessors. Despite the debacles of 1915, Joff never wavered in his commitment to victory, and he made sure to remove anyone who he felt lacked a similar mindset. Joff possessed two qualities which are indispensable to wartime leaders, magisterial calm in times of crisis, and being as stubborn as a rock. For better or for worse, his ability to remain unperturbed had helped navigate France through the gloomy days of 1914-15. Joff was guided by a single principle, to kick the Germans out and have France dictate the terms. While it was a simple enough goal, completing it now seemed more daunting than ever. Not even he could deny that France needed help. Her army was being outclassed in every regard, and unless there was some way to alleviate this burden, things did not bode well for the future. At Chantilly, this lurked in the back of Joff's mind. While he hammered out his intentions, he was also guilting his allies into action. No one could deny that France had done more than her proportional share, and it was time for everyone else to step up and assist where they could. In doing so, Joff was also taking an inherent risk. Joff had real fears about France's seniority in the alliance slipping. Increasing Allied activity against declining French meant more than just fewer casualties. Post-war influence was also in jeopardy. To be sure, Joff had a contingency in place. The Chantilly strategy was agreeable because it made sense. Forget the Austrians and Turks, and focus on the real enemy. In short, Chantilly was less about, here's how we'll win the war, and more about, here's how we'll liberate France. As the French army commander-in-chief, no one doubted Joff's influence or seniority, but Joff's opinion of his allies was less cordial. Behind all the military jargon, there remained a simple truth. Joff felt his allies were second class. Although he never doubted their potential, he felt they lacked the skill and finesse of the French army. Because of this, Joff felt they were best suited for the menial task of engaging and wearing down the enemy. Let them take the losses in the attritional struggle, and once the Germans were weakened, the French army would strike the decisive blow. This would allow France to take the glory and have the head seat at the peace table. At the end of 1915, Joff can be forgiven for believing his allies were underperforming. But as 1916 grew on, events would prove the assessment wide of the mark. Because of geography, the most important component of Joff's strategy was the Anglo-French offensive. Italy and Russia were judged too far removed to be of major influence. Occupied Belgium and Serbia were expected to have no role at all. By default, the British were left holding the baton and thus emerged as the forerunner. Luckily for the Allies, the principles were agreed to immediately. Haig, 
while inheriting the Chantilly strategy, endorsed it unequivocally. What remained to be seen was the size, time, and place of the British attack. And from here, we can begin tracing the origins of the Somme campaign. At first, Haig's attention was focused elsewhere. Britain had always been a naval power, and her islands were protected as long as the Royal Navy maintained a strong enough presence. On his second day in command, Haig received a visit from Admiral Reginald Bacon, who was tasked with securing Allied shipping lanes in the English Channel. The Germans had set up a string of U-boat and destroyer pens along the coast of occupied Belgium, the main ones being at Ostend and Zeebrugge. This worried the Admiralty, as hidden minefields had made seaborne approaches hazardous. Bacon thus discussed with Haig the option of attacking in Flanders, and driving north towards the Belgian coast to neutralize these pens. For those of you who have read ahead, comparisons to this plan to those of Third Yeep, aka the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, are plentiful. This was the battle which Haig, in December 1915, wanted to fight, which stemmed from an earlier disagreement between he and Joff. The two first met on December the 23rd. Eager to test his new British colleague, Joff brought with him two conditions. The first concerned taking over a section of the front at Arras, held by the French 10th Army, which was in dire need of rest and resupply. The second was his expectation that Haig would carry out two preparatory attacks in April and May, further allowing the 10th to recover. Haig never doubted Joff's right to command, but wisely reported this was too much for his young army. Haig exercised his right of independence and modified the proposal. The preliminary attacks were agreed to, but at a time and place which Haig would specify later. He also informed Joff that the takeover of the 10th Army would limit the number of divisions he could commit for the main effort, which Joff had planned to take place astride the Somme. This first exchange between the two C&Cs is important for three reasons. One, it shows that the Somme was Joff's and not Haig's battle, as the British C&C had yet to agree to attacking in that area. Secondly, it shows that Haig was in tune with what was realistic. The expanding BEF was untrained and lacked supplies. He would not commit them to battle until he felt they were ready. Thirdly, it also shows that Haig was not intimidated by Joff, and when the Battle of Verdun arrives, we'll see how important this really was. The meeting ended with mixed emotions. Haig had agreed to take over half of the 10th Army sector, but in exchange, floated the possibility of attacking in Flanders. From a British perspective, the Flanders operation made sense. The defenses in the salient were not as sophisticated as they would become in 1917. It would also allow the British to strike at a major communications hub, and permit the experienced BEF to work in close conjunction with the Royal Navy. Obviously, Joff was not keen on this for geographic reasons alone, but it did show that Haig was thinking operations on a grand scale, which he found promising. What eventually killed the Flanders plan was a refusal from the Belgian king, Albert I. Despite its occupation, the Allies still respected Belgian neutrality. This was important for political and public reasons. After all, Belgian neutrality was the casus belli for Britain's war, remember? To bring an offensive into Belgium then, they would need written permission from the king. But Albert squashed the notion. Meeting with Haig in early January, he refused to cooperate. He was desperate to save his kingdom from further destruction and insisted the Allies attack in France instead. The first step towards the Somme had been taken. Haig had no choice but to default to Joff's plan, but in doing so managed to wring out a compromise. 
In exchange for abandoning the Flanders operation, Joffe agreed to drop the spring attacks. Although Haig had no choice but to abandon his plan, this understanding nonetheless shows a budding respect between the two men. Joffe was well aware Haig was negotiating from a point of weakness, but regarded him enough not to push the issue. So what was Joffe's plan for the Somme anyway? In January 1916, he saw it as a two-phase operation. The first was engagement, drawing in enemy reserves and wearing them down in a series of attritional battles, followed by a decisive breakthrough delivered at the weakest point. It was not going to be easy, but Joffe hoped that if the Allies economized their reserves, the enemy could be broken, presenting a passage into open country. Okay, so why did Joffe choose this area? Well, there are a few reasons for this. The Somme Department, named after the Somme River, which runs south-north before hooking westward, formed the natural demarcation point between the Anglo-French armies, the British occupying roughly the northern half and the French the southern. It was ideal fighting country, a rural backwater speckled with woods, small villages, and farmhouses. For future reference, it was delineated by four small market towns, which, like Fleury at Verdun, would become synonymous with bloodshed and horror. Bapalm, Paroni, Charles, and Albert. North of the river, the plain dips into the Yonker Valley, which is crowned by a chocolate upland dotted with three more soon-to-be infamous towns, Tietval, Fricourt, and Beaumont-Hamel. The Germans, of course, had occupied this ridge. The chalk, if drained, is easily mined, which allowed them to construct deep, fortified dugouts. Joffre had chosen this area because it would allow the Anglo-French armies to combine the might of their firepower across a wide front. Although Joffre picked the location and championed its cause, he had little say in tactical planning, that is, how the battle was going to be fought. As William Philpott writes in his book, Three Armies on the Somme, the First World War battlefield was multi-layered and multi-staged. These layers were time, place, and method further supplemented by five difficult planning stages. The five stages being Number 1. Ensuring the operation fits the political and military objectives of the alliance. Number 2. Choosing a location in nature. Would geography dictate battle or vice versa? Number 3. Operation and tactics. How will method of attack ensure a battle delivers on its intentions? Number 4. Training. Pretty self-explanatory. And number five, flexibility, a.k.a. what happens when the unexpected happens. Each of these stages must be explored before any operational plans were drawn up. If this gives you a headache just thinking about it, that's a good thing, because you've just experienced a moment in the mind of a First World War general. Certainly, it was not a task for the incompetent. Luckily, the French possessed an officer who was equal to the challenge, and that officer was Ferdinand Foch. Ferdinand Foch is a name we've heard a few times throughout the show, but haven't mentioned in quite some time. I believe we last met him back in episode 27, when we discussed the Artois Champagne campaigns in 1915, so it's about time we gave him a proper introduction. Foch was considered by many to be one of the great military theorists of his time. Born in 1851 in the Pyrenees region, Foch had a proud military lineage. His great-grandfather rode with Bonaparte in 1809, when the Prussians invaded in 1871, Foch was studying at a Jesuit college. He volunteered for service, but the war ended before he could see action. Although never seeing a battlefield for himself, what young Foch did see 
was the chaos and disorganization of French command. This deeply troubled him, and he vowed at a young age to make soldiering a profession and to avenge the humiliation. His career as a peacetime soldier was successful, although religious faith got him into trouble with the anti-clerical Third Republic. He would go on to become a lecturer at the French War College, eventually becoming a general in 1907. His academic achievements made him a bit of a freak, and his exhaustive study of the Franco-Prussian conflict was among the first of its kind. In short, few in the upper ranks spent as much time as he did contemplating the study of war. Foch has been unfairly accused of starting the cult of the offensive, that pre-war belief that attacking spirit and moral courage could prevail over modern firepower. But like we saw with Haig, his writings were taken out of context and badly interpreted. Foch believed that France's defeat in 1871 was because the army was lazy and lacked initiative. It was the only reason he could come up with to explain such a quick defeat. Its weapons, size, and equipment were on par with the Prussians, the only difference being that the Prussians fought with discipline and skill, two things only achievable if troops are motivated. Those who read Foch's work interpreted this to mean that spirit and morale were the only keys to success. In other words, France would have won if everyone hadn't been so lazy. When in reality, Foch's argument was that modern weaponry would never replace morale. He warned that technology could lead to laziness and disciplinary lapse. He is often quoted as saying, The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. Complacency, or expecting to win because you had better equipment, was a sandpit he was careful to avoid. Technology could only take an army so far. Artillery could smash everything around it, but it would always be the infantry tasked with the dirty work of exploiting and defending. Foch was thus interested in marrying the two branches, firepower and infantry working together instead of being separate. In 1870, the Prussians had fought like one unit, while the French refused to come together. Like Haig with his cavalry, it was about integration, not separation. Foch had used this philosophy to great effect. In 1914, he helped swing the balance at the Battle of the Marne and organized the defense of the Ypres salient. During that terrible August, with the Germans surrounding him, Foch dispatched a telegram which enamored Henry Joff. My center is giving way. My right is in retreat. Situation excellent. I shall attack. As the army restructured itself following the race to the sea, Foch was promoted to command the Northern Army Group, consisting of the 6th and 10th armies near Flanders. This gave him the task of coordinating French action with that of Belgian and British armies. Needless to say, Foch was well suited for the task of planning the Anglo-French endeavor. On Valentine's Day 1916, Foch presented Joff with his first outline for the Somme campaign. It consisted of 39 French and 25 British divisions, attacking across a 72-kilometer front. The French goal was to seize the rising ground south of Perigny, while the British took the high ground near Bapaume. After these were secure, the two armies would form a pincer move, the French bending northeast, while the British facilitated the attack by outflanking the Somme bend and driving southeast. Not only would this remove the salient near the Allied junction, but it would force the enemy into making the tough decision of defending a pocket or withdrawing to better ground to the west. It should be noted that this plan would not be met in one day. Foch made it clear it would take weeks, if not months of hard fighting, before results would show. This plan, of course, was grand strategy, 
Generals like to point out maps and pretend everything moves with the sweep of a hand. This early draft was a reflection of Foch's thinking, and how he felt the battle should play out. Unfortunately, Joff had differing opinions. He felt the operation was too complicated, and argued that the BEF's role was overly ambitious given their experience. Foch was instructed to scale things down and modify the plan. In truth, Foch's original plan was in need of simplification. However, it should be noted that Foch never warmed to the idea of attacking on the Somme, nor did he believe that the Anglo-French armies possessed the firepower. Instead, Foch hoped to attack at the Vimy Ridge, allowing 10th Army to secure good observation for the armies in the south. His first draft was thus a hybrid of his outlook and that of Joffre's. But behind this lurked another issue which concerned the British. They did not have 25 divisions in France at the time, although their strength was steadily increasing. Naturally, Hag did not like the insinuation that he had already committed the divisions before they had arrived. At this point, Hag was more concerned with the build-up proceeding on schedule. After all, a surprise attack against the Russians or the French could change the whole dynamic. In the end, Foch's influence was clipped. Not because his strategy was unsound, but because administrative details ultimately prevented it. His rank as army group commander had no equivalent in the British army meaning his instructions were akin to shouting in the wind. Hag could ignore them if he so pleased. Ultimately, it was up to Hag to decide what Britain's commitment to the Somme would be. Despite French efforts to make the BEF subservient, Hag had the final word on operational strategy. Thus, it fell to Hag to plan the largest military operation yet undertaken by the British Army. He was perfectly willing to cooperate with the French, but one should not confuse this with affectation. He was not a reactionary marionette. While the Somme was Joffre's battle, the British role was hagged without question. Before we head out for this week, I want to end off with a brief discussion of where the Somme fit into overall British strategy, and introduce some of the key players who will emerge as the date comes nearer. Ironically, it was not the French or Germans who complicated Hag's task. Unlike Joffre, whose strategic authority was near limitless, Hag still had a government to answer to. As CNC, one of his responsibilities was to sell the Somme to his political masters in London. In this regard, he enjoyed the backing of Lord Kitchener, but a second powerful supporter emerged in December 1915. This man was Sir William Robertson, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, or CIGS for short. As CIGS, Robertson was the professional head of the British Army, meaning his job was to stay in London and serve as a go-between for the army and government. Not to be confused with Kitchener's role, which was a civilian position, Robertson's loyalty lay with Hag and the army. In short, Kitchener's perch had begun to creak at the end of 1915. His insistence on withholding troops had rubbed the government and army the wrong way. Thus, Robertson's appointment to CIGS was a deliberate ploy to clip Kitchener's wings. William Robertson occupies a unique place in Britain's military being the only man to rise from private to field marshal, an accomplishment made possible only through Robertson's formidability. He was highly intelligent, supremely analytical, and possessed a flair for language and capacity for hard work. He made his name as an intelligence officer, serving as Sir John's chief of staff until December 1915. With Hag replacing Sir John, there was a similar shakedown in the war office, with Robertson landing the role of CIGS soon after. Although Robertson served as a counterweight to Kitchener, the two men shared a lot in common. 
By this point, British strategy was flowing in competing currents. On the one side, you had the so-called traditionalists, men who believed Britain's commitment should be limited to her sea and economic muscle. Men who supported this view usually had responsibilities for the British economy, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and Director of Trade being the highest ranking. On the other side of the debate, you had the total warriors, those who believed that only through the total mobilization of Britain's population and economy, as well as its army and navy, could the war be won. Robertson and Kitchener saw eye to eye on strategy, both believing that the war could only be won on the Western Front. Foreign debacles like the Dardanelles and Salonika fronts proved there were no alternatives to fighting in France. In short, the flailing of 1915 meant the limited approach was no longer feasible. Britain needed to go all in or risk German victory. The problem was that Britain would need to pay the blood price. Casualty lists in 1915 had been horrific, but a commitment to the Western Front promised further bloodshed. This caused a real anxiety for Britain's political leaders, whose job was to keep the home fires burning. Although Britain had already committed herself to total war, not everyone believed in Western Front strategy, the loudest being David Lloyd George, who in the role as munitions minister, supplied the tools that allowed the army to carry out the costly battles he fervently opposed. Lloyd George was a paradox in this regard. As Gary Sheffield puts it, he was ready to sacrifice any number of sacred cows at the altar of victory, but recoiled from the human cost of military success. Like Kitchener and Robertson, Lloyd George viewed the war as a struggle for national survival, but hated the idea of fighting in France. As we discussed back in episode 42, Lloyd George championed himself as a hero of the common people. His modest Welsh upbringing gave him that blue-collar mentality which endeared him to England's working classes. Because of this, Lloyd George felt he had a responsibility to ensure casualty lists were short and that the generals were held accountable for their decisions. Although he never shied from a national commitment, Lloyd George favored a more limited approach. He was sincerely horrified by the carnage in France, and felt Britain needed to retain her independence by supporting her allies elsewhere, namely in Salonika, the Middle East, and by sending guns and infantry to assist the Italians. This put him at loggerheads with Robertson and Haig. Lloyd George felt there were little more than French pawns who came running when Paris rang the bell. This ongoing debate between the British government and its military is something we'll get into more next week, but I wanted to introduce it today because it will have important ramifications. For one, it would overshadow British strategy for the remainder of the war. And secondly, it forms the basis of a long-standing debate in the historiography, which pits the clever politicians against the unimaginative military. As we'll see heading forward, the animosity between Haig and Lloyd George was real and perhaps no other book has done more to damage Haig's reputation than Lloyd George's memoir. These two men would become inextricably linked, and despite their contradictions, provide one of the most fascinating relationships of the First World War. I, for one, can't wait to explore this fascinating rivalry. The Battle of the Somme would mark the beginning of this bitter rivalry. Until the summer of 1916, Haig and Lloyd George would have little contact, as both were kept busy in their respective duties. But then the war took a stunning turn. On the 5th of June, Lord Kitchener was en route to an inter-allied conference in Russia. That afternoon, he lunched with Admiral Jellicoe at Scapa Flow, congratulating the exhausted Admiral for its efforts at the Battle of Jutland. Kitchener then transferred to the armored cruiser HMS Hampshire for the last leg of his journey. 
Jellicoe had stood on deck, bidding the field marshal goodbye before his departure. Thirty minutes after leaving port, gale force winds began to pick up. Under orders not to reduce speed for fear of U-boats, Hampshire's captain maintained course, quickly outpacing his destroyer escorts, which were being tossed about in the crashing waves. Then, at around 8pm, there was a tremendous explosion. Hampshire had struck a mine. Surrounded by howling winds, lifeboats were slow to launch. Silhouetted against the black kills of the Orkneys, HMS Hampshire sank in less than 15 minutes. Lord Kitchener was last seen standing on the quarterdeck, and along with 600 of her crew, he went down with a doomed vessel. For weeks, bodies continued to wash up on the Orkney shores, but Kitchener's was never found. Kitchener's death was a disaster of unparalleled proportion. As the Admiralty stumbled in its response to the events at Jutland, Kitchener's demise, while in the care of the Royal Navy no less, was almost too much to comprehend. Conspiracy theories began almost immediately, with Irish nationalists, German sympathizers, and the British government being insinuated. Others refused to believe it, convincing themselves that Kitchener was safe and sound at the helm of the Russian armies, awaiting his moment to return. For millions of young men, Lord Herbert Kitchener was the reason they volunteered for service. Few figures in history have had the ability to rally a nation like he did. A towering figure of heightened stature, with his steely blue gaze calling to young Britons across the empire, Kitchener was the embodiment of Britain's war, a guiding voice who commanded respect across the generations. His very presence had led many to believe that Britain would be unbeatable as long as he lived. Now, suddenly and without warning, he was gone, leaving behind a vacuum few men could fill. Thus, it fell to men like Hag and Lloyd George to carry out Kitchener's strategic vision, against the backdrop of a nation in desperate need of guidance. Lloyd George would gain a louder voice when he replaced Kitchener as Secretary of State for War. Their relationship would hang over Britain's war like a lead balloon. Hag, the man commanding Kitchener's army, and Lloyd George, the man who armed it. They were poles apart on many issues. But, as we'll see next week, they agreed on one thing. The Somme had to be fought. Britain no longer had the luxury of time. The Battle of Verdun had seen to that. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I would like to thank our most recent donor, John, and extend an additional thank you to all listeners who have made donations. The donate button is up on the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources, which I am always on the hunt for. Another way to help promote the show is to go to iTunes and write a quick 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 49 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly. 